Louisiana Eats is brought to you with support from Zatarans, maker of New Orleans pantry staples like Creole mustard, fish fry, and jambalaya mix since 1889. Recipes and more at Zatarans.com. From our studios in the Southern Food and Beverage Museum in New Orleans, this is Louisiana Eats. I'm Poppy Tooker. Over 3,000 new cookbooks are published every year in the U.S. That's a lot of books to keep up with. On this week's show, we're visiting with the authors of two of my favorites published in 2018, Chasing the Gator by Isaac Toops and Jennifer Cole, and Season. Big Flavors, Beautiful Food by Nick Sharma. Both authors write about what they know best. Isaac covers Cajun food his way, while Nick shares his life's delicious journey as an Indian immigrant in America. Then we meet Robert Palestina, founder of The Cookbook Project, a New Orleans-based nonprofit which really isn't about publishing cookbooks at all. Instead, Robert's cookbook project deals with food literacy, training educators for classroom intervention from early childhood through young adults. We're hitting the books on this week's Louisiana Eats. Back in 2016, we discovered just how much the camera loves Chef Isaac Toops when he was voted fan favorite on Bravo Network's Top Chef. Now, readers with a taste for Cajun cooking love him, too. That's right. Fans who have long searched for Isaac's recipes now have the chance to peruse his very first cookbook, Chasing the Gator. The book was a collaborative effort between Isaac and acclaimed food writer Jennifer Cole, and it's much more than a book of recipes. It's a culinary memoir of Isaac's one-of-a-kind Cajun upbringing. I'm blessed to have the family that I have, you know, mother being a, co- a prairie Cajun, father being a coastal Cajun. Didn't really realize the upbringing I had until later on, realizing that I had this wonderful upbringing of multicultural phenomenon that is Cajun and just immersed in it and steeped in it. And we did things that were normal to me but are not normal to other people. You know, not everybody goes hunting or fishing on the weekends and throws tomahawks or have pig roast. That's actually not very common at all, Um, especially outside of South Louisiana. And then you move to other places and you talk to other people going like, oh, you guys didn't do that? Oh, weird. What does your mom cook? Your mom doesn't cook? (laughs) <laughs> oh, my God. Yeah, so I had this upbringing. I didn't start cooking professionally, as you know, until I was 21. But before that, I could chuck oysters faster than most chefs could. And I knew how to boil crawfish and cook meats and smoke meats. And I could hunt a deer, skin it, and then prepare it that night. And that's pretty unique, apparently. Well, I want to talk to you about this book. And it's billed as the new Cajun cooking I'd like you to tell me what's the new frontier. 
Uh, the new frontier, you know, and that's kind of a loose terminology. It's, it's basically what I've been doing to it. What have I been doing to the Cajun food? So you've got recipes in there like cracklings and dirty rice and gumbo, of course. But you also have things that aren't necessarily Cajun that I've kind of turned Cajun. So I, I'm always one to venture out and to get new things and to try our local produce and our local seafood bounties and animals just in a, in a different light, if you will. I call it contemporary Cajun because I can't think of better names for stuff. Uh, <laughs> so what does a Cajun boy do, born and raised in Rain, Louisiana, working for Chef Emerald for 10 years, and with the bounty of things that I can get in New Orleans and the techniques that I've picked up on, what does what the, the Cajun boy do with all that food? Well, he does exactly what I'm doing. Contemporary Cajun, new Cajun food, call it what you want. But it's fine dining mentality, old school thoughts, modern ingredients and techniques all put together in my restaurants and in this book. So you kind of get a taste of the old school and you get the story of how it came about. But more importantly, how is it evolving? And it's continuously evolving. Again and again, I see that very highly refined French food and French technique appearing in a Cajun guise. Would I be right in thinking that maybe Rion is a dish of yours that follows that thread? That's probably one of the most exact French things I do. So I found the Rions in an old French cookbook. And of course, a, a really old cookbook, of course, it's just said caramelized pork belly in the oven with red wine and sugar. No temperature, no amounts. That was it. I'm like, okay. Uh, so I literally just sugar, red wine, hot oven, stirred it a lot. Oh my God, this is delicious. It literally happened like that. They didn't even add salt to it, so I add salt to it now in fresh time. And, of course, I've refined the technique to make them even better and better. But it was one of those things like, well, this is, if it's going to be old school French and not Cajun, this is definitely the dish. You know, I have long, long been a lover of your first restaurant, Toops Meadery. How long has Toops been around now? Seven years. Oh, my goodness. Well, it's I can't... been a blur, Poppy. It's, it's been a blur. It's been a blast, A, blessed, a blessing of a blur. So that is where I came to love your Rion. As a matter of fact, I fell in love with you the first time I ever saw the quote of what you dreamed for your new restaurant to be. You said you wanted a place where people could come and eat foie gras in their shorts. And that is one of my favorite phrases I've ever heard, foie gras in my shorts. I love that idea. And Isaac Toops, you sure know what to do with some foie gras. It's one of my favorite ingredients. It really is. I mean, it's, it's, it's almost cliche for a chef to love foie gras. It's, it's, it's pure fat with some liver in it. Why, why would you not like it? But I really do love it, and that's why it's going to be on, on my menus for time being. I'm going to the James Beard house in a couple of weeks, and I put foie gras in hogshead cheese. <gasps> foie gras fromage de tête. It's, oh. I've never heard it done before. I've done it before. It comes out absolutely fantastic. It's where the classical French Cajun meat, you know, you got, you got refined technique, you got Cajun mentality, and proper ingredients, and then you, you come up with something like foie gras fromage de tête. Well, what really tickles me is that you have just come clean with us, and every one of those classic dishes that we have all come to love, first at the meadery and now at Toop South, you gave up the recipes. We can make it at home. Good luck. But ex <laughs> Thank you, because that's exactly <laughs> what I said. I said to myself, oh, Rian at home. 
And then I read the recipe and I said, Morian at the meadery. <laughs> <laughs> So that's that's the thing. I've I've always given out my recipes. I really always never never this articulate, never this nice of a book. But anytime someone wanted to ask, how do you make the krakens? And I would tell them, and they would call me and said, they didn't come out right. I'm like, I know. That's why I told you because I knew you, even though it's a very simple recipe, and a lot of these recipes are very simple. Sometimes getting you're looking at chicken hearts right now. You can maybe get chicken hearts, but the recipes aren't that difficult. They are particular. Me and Jennifer got together and really put our effort into making sure it was a legible and written in a way that you could approach. And if you were adventurous and could get some of these uh, weird ingredients, you can make anything in this book. Your book is laid out in a different way than I've seen cookbooks in the past. It's so personal. That's one of the things that really makes me love this. And the whole story's in here. We go from the boucherie to the community table to the fish camp and the hunt camp. So why did you want your book to roll out like this? Um, again, I can't, uh, I'm going to give credit where credit is due. Uh, Jennifer Cole came up with the idea instead of normal chapters, we separate into the events, and I, which I immediately loved because I didn't have a better answer for that because the first came up, well, how do we want to section this off into chapters? And, and it's like an obvious question, but I didn't think to ask it because I've never written a book before. So luckily we had professionals around us that says, okay, you need chapters. Like, oh, yeah, that, that makes sense. And she just came up with that idea, and I thought, that's the best idea I've ever heard of. You know, you're one of my favorite radio guests. We've made some really fun radio in the past, but I was very surprised to finally read in print a story you told me a long time ago, that wild hunting tale about the rabbit. The Doc Holliday rabbit, the best shot ever made. I love that one. When you win a James Beard Award, I think you should insist that Amanda carry that rabbit purse to the awards with you. I'm going to insist as well. We'll see how far that goes. <laughs> she hasn't taken that purse outside the house. Why did you call the book Chasing the Gator? Chasing the Gator, um, you know, again, I'm not great at naming things, but it made sense once you started to think about it. It says, I'm the gator. I'm always chasing flavors. That's that's me. I, I want the next thing. I'm never satisfied with the food I have. I want it to be better. I want to taste new things. I like to go to the different international markets and eat new food. I like to travel and eat new things prepared in different ways. I'm always looking for the next thing. What's what's What am I going to taste next that's going to like, oh, that's new. I want to make it. That's, that's what excites me as a chef. It's what excites me as a human. I mean, I live to I really do. It's my favorite thing to do. I, mean, I don't have other hobbies. Me and my wife go out and we want to eat new food all the time. And get, I'm making myself hungry just thinking about it. And also, like a gator, I'm perfectly happy to just sit there on a log and sun. But if you mess with me, I'll bite your head off. It's just a brilliant analogy, chasing the gator. And Isaac, you know, most people, when you meet young chefs these days, they're covered in tattoos. It's hard to find a place on them that's not tattooed. And I never knew about your tattoos until you wrote Chasing the Gator. It seems like maybe there's one gator that you've caught. Yeah, I've got a, the big old tattoo on my back, which, which I like it because it's hidden. Because it's almost, you're right, it's almost a prerequisite to have a, a sleeve full of tattoos on your arms if you're going to be a chef. It's, it's more common than not. And... I kind of like that it's on my back because you don't know it's there. It's, it's completely covered my back. So the story goes something like this. Yeah, and then that big Cajun took off his shirt and his humongous tattoo there. 
<laughs> and the story will evolve some way, which is going to be hilariously convoluted. Isaac, is there anything else you want to tell people? I just wanted to say one thing, and let me see if I can get it right. Okay. <clears throat> this is Louisiana Eats <laughs> with Poppy Tooker. <laughs> Thanks, Isaac. Thank you, Poppy. Anytime. That was Chef Isaac Toops of Toops Meadery and Toops South. His new book is called Chasing the Gator. If you'd like to hear more, an extended version of our conversation is available as a podcast. In it, Isaac shares his recipe for cracklins and takes me outside to play one of his favorite Cajun games, which involves throwing some very sharp tomahawks. Let's chuck one. But that's the, the overall technique. You really have to throw it and to aim it, Poppy, pretend this is a hammer and the target is a nail. No one was harmed in the making of this podcast. You can find it at poppytooker.com. Next, we speak with Nick Sharma about his debut cookbook, Season. Nick is a writer, photographer, and recipe developer whose award-winning blog, A Brown Table, evolved into a weekly column for the San Francisco Chronicle. Louisiana Eats returns after the break. Tooker, and you're listening to Louisiana Eats, edible content for Louisiana food lovers. Louisiana Eats is brought to you with major support from Rouse's Markets. From Camellia Brand, Beans Done Right, a New Orleans tradition since 1923. And from Ralph's on the Park, overlooking City Park's ancient oaks. Serving locally sourced Gulf seafood, meats, and farm fresh produce all presented with a global spin by Chef Chip Flanagan. Lunch, dinner, Saturday and Sunday brunch and private parties at 900 City Park Avenue in Mid-City. I'm Nick Sharma, author for Brown Table, and I'm also a columnist at the San Francisco Chronicle. As a child, Nick Sharma dreamt of a culinary career, but first he appeased his parents' desire to see him in a more stable profession. Biomedical research filled that bill. But before long, the kitchen and what he calls the Brown Table lured him back. We spoke with Nick about that evolution and his first cookbook, Season. So I was never really sure if I wanted to write a cookbook. And when I said I did, I really wanted something new to tell people. First of all, 
I'm introducing myself to a whole new audience, to the world, basically. And so I wanted to tell the story of what it was for me, why I moved from India to America. I'm an immigrant. I'm also gay. Uh, why America was my second home. And it became my second home. And so I wanted to tell that story, but also tell that through food, because food was one of the elements that kind of tied everything together for me. I was connecting my past with my present and my future. And I wanted to put that all together in a book and do it in my way. Would you tell us the story of how you happened to become involved with food? Because life didn't really start out that way, and your family really wasn't thinking that that was the life that you were going to lead. Yeah, um, that wasn't the plan at all. I always loved to cook. One of the things that I found about cooking was it was very experimentative. You could do what you want, you could change things, and you'd land up with something that tasted good or it tasted bad, but it was still exciting. And I wanted to go to culinary school as a kid. My parents said no, because they said that's just not a stable career. And as an adult now, I see that it is true. It's a high-risk career. Uh, They were looking out for me. And so I went into something that was much more stable. I went into biomedical research. Um, (laughs) Not really much like cooking. No. (laughs) But funny enough, all those skills have now helped me become a better cook, understand what's going on in the kitchen. And so I feel like I've learned a lot, which is exciting. And then I moved to America uh, more than a decade ago. Uh, I came for grad school. And when I was in grad school, I had a very limited budget. And one of the things I realized that living in America, it's such a diverse nation. And one of the exciting things is you have restaurants from families that have come from Italy, from Greece, from France. And that was my way on a limited budget to see the world. And so I started eating out, trying to learn what was going on. And it drew me in. It was the seduction of food, to be honest. I left grad school and went to D.C., where I worked at Georgetown Hospital for the longest time. And over there, I started the blog because my friend said, there's this thing called blogs. You should do a food blog because you like to cook and your recipes are fun. So I said, well, it sounds like a lot of work, to be honest. And it is, but that's what I did. I went ahead and started a blog called A Brown Table. The actual story behind the name of the blog, uh, my husband's family, when we were dating, his family lives on a farm on the border of Virginia, North Carolina. And I used to get wooden planks from them, from the farm, to photograph on. A lot of people don't know this, but the planks used to be kept on the recycle can and then the garbage can, and I would photograph. And so I said, why not just call it a brown table? Because I was terrible at coming up with names. So I said, I think this might work. And then it's also play on the color of my skin. And so I said, it's, you know, it's fun. Let me just do this. It's a little cheeky. That's how I am. So it's brilliant. I love it. I love it. So the brown table then led you into a life as a journalist? I wouldn't call myself a journalist because I don't do any reporting. But uh, I was looking for a photography job. And a friend of mine named John Birdsall, who you might be familiar with, he said, why don't you reach out to the San Francisco Chronicle and ask them for freelance food photography jobs? And I said, I think that's a great idea. Let me go. And I met my would-be editor, Paolo Locassi, who said, Sure, send me your work. And then we met up. And then I think like a week or two weeks later, he came back and said, hey, we were actually thinking, why don't you write a column? And you can do what you want. And so that's how A Brown Kitchen was born, which is the name of my column at The Chronicle. That is. And how long have you been at that now? It's been a little over two and a half years now. How long did it take you to write your beautiful new book, Season? Two years. 
I love the process of cooking as much as I like the ingredients and the final dish, which is why I left my job in science to go into cooking. And so I really like portraying instructions so people learn visually. Because uh, sometimes when I've read through recipes, I find it hard sometimes to understand what's actually going on, what the next step is. And so I wanted to do instructions, but do it in a beautiful way for people to understand. I'd like to talk about the actual food. because okay, let's do that. It's, you know... Everyone knows you're East Indian and, you know, what your origin is. And so you would expect to have certainly a little Indian influence in the book, which there's no curry. There's no curry. It's intentional. Explain that. To be honest, when I moved to America, one of the things I learned that, and this was new to me, having never been in the West before, there is a very stereotypical menu when you go to an Indian restaurant. Uh, With curries, I feel that every time... You hear Indian food, you hear curries. And so I said, it is, I've always said it's a little frustrating for me to hear that because there's so much more that my country has to, well, my former country has to offer. But if I'm always getting frustrated, I'm really not contributing to the conversation to make change. And so I said, if I'm going to do a book, I'll do it in my way and make a conscious decision to avoid curries because there are people who have already done that. Like Madhu Jaffrey's done an excellent job. Um, I'm not contributing anything new at this point to the conversation. What are the most traditional Indian foods that we might find in your book? What 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 did you cook that was traditional? So did, okay, so I did put the naan in there uh, because I wanted to have fun with it. So I did like a pizza and then I used the naan as tortilla, like you would tortilla chips in uh, like the Mexicans do in the sopa. But one of the things I did uh, in the book was to introduce food from my mom's side of the family, my mom's going, and so their food is heavily Portuguese influenced. So if you look, there's a recipe for potato chops where it's basically mashed potatoes with flavored ground meat that's seasoned and spiced, and you put that in and you make this little pocket. Um, and it's amazing. I mean, I, I don't mm. know why people don't have that on menus. You are just such a reflection of your life as an American immigrant and the things that you have just picked up, like... I love that you've got a meatloaf recipe. Yeah. <laughs> I Okay, so I learned about meatloaf through my husband and his family. Um, and that's something that he loves to make at home. I think when we first started dating, that's what he made me once. Um, he doesn't cook a lot now because I do it all. But um, it's such a beautiful recipe. It's like a sponge. I think of recipes sometimes as sponges where they can be adapted and manipulated to what you want. And that's the same thing with that. So I could use pomegranate molasses, which I've done um, in a lot of the recipes and in the meatloaf. Um, You know, you can add spices and flavor it. You can make things your own. And even with the book, that's what I want people to finally at the end of the day to go with it. Take my recipes and make them your own. And that's what people should do in their kitchen. Don't be stifled by tradition or instructions because rules, I feel, are always meant to be broken. Now, I think a lot of people might be intimidated by the use of spices, the number of spices, unfamiliar ingredients that um, tend to be a hallmark of Indian cuisine. Mm -hmm. How would you want everyone to approach that and how did you approach it in the book? I use this an analogy. We're always afraid of things we don't know. And that was the thing, even with with me being gay, I always felt that people were afraid of who gay people are. And unless you get to know someone, it's, it's difficult to make that thing because you have all these preconceived notions. The same thing with spices. But 
One of the things I did with the book, if you flip through the early pages of the book, I created a flavor spice glossary, which basically shows you macro photos that I put together, close up, so you know what they look like. Because a lot of seeds also look similar, like cumin and fennel. They do have the same shape. The colors are different. They taste and smell different. So I tried to make it easy where you just have a sentence on a spice. You kind of know what it is. But I also feel people who live in the South are probably the most well adapted and also the most knowledgeable people on spices in the country. Because this is where, like New Orleans, for example, is known for its flavorful food. I find it a very compelling story that you are a young man from India who felt the need to strike out from India because of who you were. Mm -hmm. And it touched me reading in the book what an important place New Orleans has been to you. So would you talk to me about that a little bit, Nick? So I moved because I was also scared about being gay in India. So I moved and I went to school in Cincinnati. Uh, That's where I met one of my best friends who is from New Orleans. Her family lives here. She was raised here. Um, And she knew. And so I had come out to her. We spoke about it. And I think she could sense at the time, we really didn't discuss it, but she could sense that I was kind of uncomfortable with myself too, because that's a large part of the process when you come out. And she would bring me to visit her family. So we would come to New Orleans at least maybe once every quarter. We were in a quarter system. And so we would come down and I would spend time with her family. And they knew, but there was never any, they're an Indian family. There was never any judgment. It was my safe space because I didn't have family in Cincinnati or in New Orleans, but her family became my family away from home. And it became the city became my safe space because I came here. I have a lot of friends now who either went to Tulane or went to LSU. Um, and so I did that throughout my life when I was in grad school, even when I moved to D.C. Um, and so it just... That's why I love the city, because it was my safe space. Well, I can't say how thrilled I am that you you. are so at home here, because it's my home, and I love it. And I love, love, love your work. I'm such a fan. So thank you so much for making the time to sit down and tell us your story and talk to us about your beautiful book. Congratulations, Thank you. Absolutely. Thank you for having me today. That was Nick Sharma, author of Season, Big Flavors, Beautiful Food. Knowledge is power. And for food lovers, there's no tool more powerful than a cookbook. That's the first thing that Philippe Lamancusa learned when he began to carve a place for himself in the restaurant industry back in the 60s. Philippe became an obsessive cookbook collector as his culinary career transported him from New Orleans to the West Coast and back again. By that time, he had thousands of cookbooks in his personal collection. And that's when he opened Kitchen Witch, a shop of books for cooks. 
originally located in the French Quarter, now in the Seventh Ward, Philippe and his partner, Debbie Lindsay, have found a home for their books in a space covered in culinary treasures and illuminated by endless twinkling lights. Producer Sarah Holtz visited Philippe and Debbie at Kitchen Witch and came back with much more than a good recipe. There's no such thing as a bad cookbook. There'll be a book here for eight years and somebody will walk in and it'll be just the book they're looking for. Hi, I'm Debbie Lindsay, co-owner of Kitchen Witch, and um, this is my partner. Philippe Lamancusa. Yes, I'm, I'm the other co-owner. Kitchen Witch cookbooks, music, and art. You know, I was working in San Francisco, and, and uh, one day I came home, and my daughter was living with me, and she had seen me buying cookbooks, and daughters learn how to roll their eyes at a certain point. She would roll her eyes, and I would say, when I retire, I'm going to open a cookbook store. And we always talked about our time in New Orleans. Uh, we're living in San Francisco, and one day I'm, I'm doing the big wah-wah about, you know, it's been you know, 10 weeks without a day off. It's been 14-hour days. I'm planning another menu. I'm writing the recipes. I'm hiring staff. I'm, uh, I don't know who I am. I have nothing in common with myself. And she just said, you know, look at the hand. Stop. It's time for you to retire. It's time for you to open up your cookbook store. And it's time to go back to New Orleans. So she came back and we opened the cookbook store and on Rampart Street. And now we work seven days a week. <laughs> it's like I had 5,000 cookbooks that I had collected because as a chef, I needed to know. And that was when, 1972. Still, there's so much more to learn. And still, I'm collecting cookbooks. And still, we're selling cookbooks now. And then we collect more cookbooks. And we are at home, we have shelves and shelves of books as well. It's just like we're, we're book people. We just love collecting books. Except when we opened, I contributed one book. One book. He contributed 5,000. But it's okay because I cook. Yeah, and then I explain, all right, 42 years experience working in restaurants, front of the house, 50 years or more experience working definitely kitchen back of the house it was functional because it was part of my education and part of my the teaching of my staff uh, that I had one job for eight years that I was able to do whatever I wanted to and so I could plan a calendar and then I would walk in to my staff on Friday and say this weekend we're doing Basque food and then the next week say oh we're doing food from Spain Okay, now we're doing Thai food this weekend, and did that for eight years. And so I would go out and I would, I would absorb everything I could on, if we were doing Mexican food, I would go down to the, the, the Mexican section of San Francisco, and I would, if I was going to do tamales, I would spend a day eating tamales in every restaurant I could, and then get every book I could that included tamales, and, and learn to make tamales. always uh, pimp him out, uh, especially when we sell Paul Prudhomme's Louisiana Kitchen. So people would come in, they'd almost like they rehearsed it. If I were to get just one, I know what you're going to say, just one book from Louisiana, this is it. And I walk him over, to, as he does too, to Paul Prudhomme's Louisiana Kitchen, his first, his best. And I explain to the people from somewhere that's never seen him, 
you know, I'll thank Julia Child, fat with the beard. You got, you got Paul Prudhomme. So anyway, then I show them Philippe's beat up copy from 1985 that he's chefed out of. And even though I don't cook, well, I can sell it with such confidence because I can see all the years of knowledge that he's acquired from it. So with each book, and we'll do it for any of them if you want, but with this one in particular, we stick our business card, a little crack and peel label inside, and I tell them, you have your very own complimentary culinary consultant via phone or email. All you got to do is call this dude up and you've got your support line, your helpline. Surprise, surprise. Hi, how are y'all? Hello, Kitchen Witch. I was here years ago, but when you were in a different in location. Yes. And so I was like, I have to go to Kitchen Witch. So we looked it up and, and we're You know, you get a, a book in, like we got Joy of Cooking, which was published in 1931, uh, done by Irma Rombauer, Irma S. Rombauer. We have an autographed copy. I mean, it's like, it's priceless. You know, the first edition of, of Julia Child's Mastering the Art of French Cooking. Priceless. It's here, it's for sale, and if I don't sell it, I don't care. I've got it, it's mine. Books we have sold. Um, we have a first edition of, first English translation of the work of Apicius. Recipes date from the first to third century BC. First English translation, 1936, only 530 copies printed. The last one we sold went to Rome to the man that was the organizer of slow food. It was bought by some of his people to take to him as a present. I hated to lose it, but you know, yeah. What Debbie's told me is that that's the business. But what I've realized is when I sell a cookbook, I can buy another one. It's an addiction. The Paul Prudhomme that I have that's mine was signed to me by him. And it's like, he's not signing anymore. And I'm not giving that one away. That one's not for sale. I got it in 19, actually it was at the World's Fair in 1984. We had gone to eat dinner there. I got the book and I had him sign it to me. And then I took it back to California where I was working. I started working the recipes. And I thought, this is some hot stuff. Don't, don't let me down. At home we collect things. We, you know, um, Whenever, like, we see in the store, they have little statues of Our Lady of Guadalupe, we buy ten. We could not, we couldn't dissolve this, this life that we have. We have 10,000 cookbooks. I used to collect shoes, but I don't do that anymore. <laughs> I used to collect hats, too. What happened to the shoes? I just didn't have room for them. I, you know, having 20 or 30 pairs of shoes is a wonderful thing because you never know how your feet are going to feel in the morning. <laughs> Engineering books. Four dollars. Four dollars. Sold. <laughs> <laughs> it's a, a Creole cookbook. 
It predates, well, Lafcadio Hearn was 1865. He wrote a, a Creole cookbook. But there was one written in 1892 by a woman named Virginia James. In 1892, this book sold for $3. Uh, as opposed to, in 1900, the Picayune Creole cookbook only sold for $1. This was a book probably for women to read to their servants. The cooks in, in those kitchens, they were up from slavery. And in, in probably 1892, when the book was written, the kitchen was, was full of ex-slaves. I don't really want to sell it, but it's for sale. What don't uh, you want to sell? The 1892? Oh, no, baby, we sell anything we can sell. <laughs> <laughs> I'll sell you for a good price. Church cookbooks. There's church cookbooks from all over the country here. Um, but would we turn one down? No. Can't turn them down. They're, they're books, you know, they're, they're written. You just go through them and you, you find out people's lives. Philippe Lamancusa and Debbie Lindsay, owners of Kitchen Witch Cookbooks. Green Rocky Road, from made in green. Tell me who you love. Tell me who you love. Who do you love? What is the best selling cookbook of all time? Stay tuned, and we'll answer that question when we come right back. I'm Poppy Tooker, and you're listening to Louisiana Eats, edible content for Louisiana food lovers. Louisiana Eats is brought to you with major support from Popeye's Louisiana Kitchen and Zatarans. Have you caught our Louisiana Eats Quick Bites podcasts yet? We've just published our latest, a Mardi Gras visit with children's author and songstress Johnette Downing. So get the kids, break out the king cake, and visit poppytooker.com to listen. While there, you can also subscribe via iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts so you won't miss a delicious bite. You can also easily webcast any of the Quick Bites or Louisiana Eats episodes right from your computer on poppytooker.com. And now, back to Louisiana Eats. Here's this week's culinary quiz question, brought to you with support from Popeye's Louisiana Kitchen. What is the best-selling cookbook of all time? That's not a question easily answered. Books that appear on most top ten lists include Julia Child's classic, Mastering the Art of French Cooking, the New York Times Cookbook by Craig Claiborne, and Deborah Madison's epic, Vegetarian Cooking for Everyone. 
But perhaps the most important cookbook in the American canon is Irma S. Rombauer's Joy of Cooking. After her husband's suicide, Irma created a career for herself by self-publishing the first edition of Joy in 1931. By 1936, publisher Bob's Merrill printed a second edition, and it was off to the races for Irma and her passion project. A third edition was published in 1943, reflecting culinary changes of the time. Then, The Joy of Cooking became a family affair in 1951, when Irma's daughter, Marion Rombauer Becker, became co-author of the fourth edition. Marion carried on with future revisions after her mother's death in 1963. The sixth edition, published in 1975, became the all-time most popular version of the classic cookbook, with more than six million copies sold. That version is over a thousand pages long, with over 4,300 recipes. Marion passed away in 1976, but her son, Ethan Becker picked up the family torch and authored the 75th anniversary edition of The Joy of Cooking, which was published in 2006. The story of the Rombauer-Becker family and their massive body of work is so compelling that in 2003, Anne Mendelssohn authored Stand Facing the Stove, an amazing memoir of the cookbook that helped shape American food as we know it today. I'm Poppy Tooker, and you're listening to Louisiana Eats. My name is Robert Palestina, and I am the executive director for The Cookbook Project. The New Orleans-based nonprofit, The Cookbook Project, is an organization with a mission to combat chronic disease brought on by unhealthy eating. By promoting food justice and educating youth about wholesome eating habits, the project also seeks to preserve local food cultures with the help of community members. A 2018 graduate of the Tulane School of Public Health and Tropical Medicine, the Cookbook Project's executive director, Robert Palestina, sat down with us to discuss the organization's history and its goals. The Cookbook Project offers food literacy and cooking education to youth here in New Orleans. Um, but how we go about doing that is we're actually training community members on how to lead and run their own health education programs within their own community. Um, there's a number of different people that, that get involved within our trainings. Um, it's been anyone from mothers to fathers. Um, it's been uh, youth leaders from faith-based organizations. It's been even Peace Corps volunteers. By going through our online training, you become a certified food literacy educator. You're equipped with the tools, the resources, and actual curriculum guides to go ahead and implement your own um, food literacy and cooking education within your own community. What does it mean to be food literate? That is a great question. So what really is food literacy? So food literacy we define as not only the way that the food impacts you and your health, but food also impacts your community and your environment. So it's we look at it in three components. The food you eat obviously impacts you and who you are, your health, your body, 
but the choices you make are also impacting the environment and your community. So where are these foods coming from? Who's involved in the process? Um, think of it as a food system and everyone from the farmers that are harvesting the blueberries that are in your cereal in the morning um, to those who are putting it together and packaging it to where it's being transported from. Um, these are all important things that we need to really that we need to start to comprehend and digest in terms of the food we eat and how it ends up on this, our plate. And how was it conceived? So it was actually conceived back in 2010 when the co-founders, Alyssa Billfield and Adam Aronovich, had been doing some traveling throughout Southeast Asia. They were doing English lessons in small communities, and they realized there was this disconnect between the traditional foods that were known for those regional areas and what children were, were displaying in terms of the foods that they like to enjoy. So obviously, having English lessons with a lot of these with small communities, um, it turned out that hamburgers and hot dogs were starting to uh, make their way into the diets of these children who already have access to these amazing traditional foods and traditional ways of cooking them. So the co-founders really wanted to reignite this passion for that among the youth that they were working with. And it started very informally, just... Um, creating what we do, like for example, uh, we have an activity called the food culture recipe. Um, take a piece of paper, fold it in half, write what your favorite food is, draw a picture of it, and inside, um, write down the recipe from the best of their knowledge, right? And this is just them kind of making their own cookbook. So that's kind of how it progressed into the idea of creating this organization called The Cookbook Project. So the whole concept is teaching healthy ways of eating, but doing so by reigniting a passion between traditional ways of food preparation and regional cuisine so children can be more in touch with their culture um, and also learn how to eat healthier and cook. Since the cookbook project is all about reigniting a passion for cultural foods, there was this just natural fit between what New Orleans is, what it has to offer in terms of the culinary scene and this amazing food scene. But also on the other side of that, we have some of the highest rates of obesity in the nation. Um, we're dealing with some of the highest uh, rates of chronic diseases that are related to obesity. So as amazing as our cuisine is, there are also the consequences that can, can come with um, you know, poor eating behaviors at the same time. Your outreach has been really successful because you've got some pretty good numbers of who you're reaching in the community. Since 2015, I believe we've reached anywhere from 90 to 100 um, food literacy educators here in New Orleans. And we've that, created we've them. Created, yes, That's the army. Exactly. So essentially what we're trying to do is build upon this network of food literacy educators. Um, as our network grows, it's going to increase the impact of people that are going through our programs, um, that are learning how to cook, learning about the food that comes from their culture. And it's just a trickle-down effect in that sense. And, and so we hope that it increases the enthusiasm among children. They'll bring it home, talk to their brothers, sisters, mothers, everybody involved. Um, and there's a few things we focus on in terms of program goals. So one of those uh, that's looked over a lot is what we call uh, increasing their self-efficacy or actual belief that you can go home and you're enthusiastic about cooking and you're enthusiastic about eating new foods. Another thing that is important to us um, and in our programming is, is, is diet diversity as well. So how do you expose uh, children to new, new vegetables, new foods, um, anything that's kind of outside their comfort zone? If you can introduce children to foods at an early age, you can actually begin to train their palates. And then you can avoid all that picky eating when you're moving forward um, as they get older. Robert, where in the city is the project active if people wanted to get their children involved? 
That's a good question. So first and foremost, we would love for you to see about you running your own program. So if you are in a community that you see those children that, and you might be able to organize a space to run your own program, that's what we would love you to do. We want you to be, feel empowered. We want you, we want you to build the capacity of your community, and we have the resources that can help you do that. Robert Palestina, executive director of the Cookbook Project, based in New Orleans. That's it for this week's edition of Louisiana Eats, edible content for Louisiana food lovers. Have you visited poppytooker.com lately? That's where you'll find our full broadcasts along with our quick bites for podcasting or webcasting right from your computer or smartphone. Louisiana Eats is also available from iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Louisiana Eats is made possible with major support from Popeye's Louisiana Kitchen, Zatarain's, Rouse's Markets, and from Camellia Brand Beans. Additional support for Louisiana Eats is provided by the Shreveport Bossier Convention and Tourist Bureau and from the Palace Cafe, home of the Weekend Jazz Brunch, featuring a build-your-own Bloody Mary bar, located in the historic Whirline Music Building on Canal Street. Original theme music composed by David Pomerleau and performed by Johnny Sketch and the Dirty Notes. Big thanks to senior producer Joe Schreiner, producers Sarah Holtz and Reggie Morris, and to our business manager and social media maven, Maddie Mulladew. Come visit us anytime in our Louisiana Eats studios at the Southern Food and Beverage Museum. We're on Instagram and Facebook, too. Louisiana Eats is a production of Poppy Tooker Broadcasting. <laughs>